Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by many of the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show to us marvelous things in your word. And that our response to such things would be greater love and deeper awe in view of the person of Christ. Oh Lord, help us. We pray in his name. Amen. The newspapers used the word unimaginable to describe the crime So on the 21st of August, 1911, the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre Art Gallery in Paris and was hidden away for two years. Gloria and I watched a a documentary about it recently, and the filmmaker said, I was 25 years old when I found out that the painting had been stolen. I spent more than 30 years trying to figure out how the man who did it did it. But as the documentary goes on, the question of how very much fades into the background. Vincenzo Perugia stole the painting. He was, a, he was an immigrant from Italy, and he worked at the Louvre Art Gallery. He knew that the gallery would be closed to the public on the 21st of August. And so seeing no one around, he just very simply lifted the painting off the wall, covered it with cloths, and as we say here in England, legged it. (laughs) And the question that the documentary really focuses on, though, is the question as to why. Why would he do it? Some thought that it was an act of patriotism. So an Italian masterpiece in Paris was too much for this one Italian Others thought it was an act of revenge. Perugia was bullied for being a foreigner in Paris. They called him Dirty Macaroni, and so on and so forth. But in the end, dozens of postcards were discovered, written by the man to his parents back home in Italy, and every one of them promised to send back a fortune to relieve them from poverty. And so having the painting in his possession, he met with an art dealer and asked for three million pounds in today's money. The art dealer took it to the police for them to verify the authenticity. And the moment they did, they arrested Perugia and he was later sentenced 
to prison. His priority in life informed his decisions. And the reality is, behind every endeavor, good or bad, are a person's priorities. They direct our lives. They inform all of our decisions. And as we continue in Acts this morning, we're going to see the priorities for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of our passage is God's church must have God's priorities. God's priorities are to be the driving forces behind the church's mission, which is the greatest endeavor of all. Now, so far in Acts, as as the apostles have been getting on with this commission that Christ gave to them, this great endeavor, there have been threats, there had been arrests, even floggings. There have been warnings to speak no more in Jesus' name, no more seeking to make disciples, and yet the church was growing and disciples were being made. And the focus was therefore needed to be maintained on the main things. Because the main thing is always to keep the main thing. So just let me say, if you're here today and you're visiting Hoy Lake Evangelical Church, this is a great Sunday to visit because so much of what we're going to see in our passage today is we think about God's priorities for God's church, drives this church, and drives me as well as pastor. And so today I want us to see, number one, God's priorities for church leaders. Number two, God's method for preserving them. And number three, God's blessing on his priorities. So number one, God's priorities for church leaders. Look with me again at verse one. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because Their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There they are. The twin priorities for church leaders are prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, are church leaders to visit the sick? Yes. Are church leaders to do the work of an evangelist? Absolutely. But those works fall into the category of the ministry of the word, which is to be covered by believing prayer. Now we're going to come back to these two priorities and put them under the microscope as it were and really help ourselves to get a grasp on what they are and why they're so key. But before we do that, notice how these two priorities were pushed to the fore because of unrest in the church. The Hellenists, they were like the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrews were the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And the upshot of that language barrier was 
a, was that the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews were being overlooked as food was distributed to all the church in Jerusalem. And because of the outcry, the apostles were forced, really, to clarify God's call on their lives. So it wasn't that serving tables was beneath them. They were heralds of the servant king who said, The greatest among you is the servant. And who said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But this was a question of call. What had God called these men to do? Answer prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, friends, Mark and I are not apostles. And whenever we announce ourselves to be apostles with our own brand new book of the Bible, it is time to show us the door. But prayer and the ministry of the word are clearly the twin priorities for local church pastors as well. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. And then later in the same chapter, the author says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Prayer and the ministry of the word. What's the big deal? Why are they top priorities for church leaders? Well, I want to give us three reasons each for both prayer and the ministry of the word. Do bear with me. Number one, true prayer is the admission of helplessness. True prayer is the admission of helplessness. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. The apostles had been clothed with power from on high, had they not? Just as Jesus had promised. They had led thousands to saving faith in Jesus. They were healing the sick. Peter's shadow was sufficient to heal the diseased in Jerusalem. And yet prayer was their top priority because they knew how true Jesus' words were. Without me, you can do nothing. And when he said, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Second, true prayer is a discipline of faith. In the very same breath that prayer says, I can't, it also says, you can. Next, true prayer is the channel through which God's blessing flows. And so when helplessness and when faith are welded together, they form the pipe through which God's blessing flows to God's church. Do you know, there have been times in my own ministry among you over the last 18 months or so, where I've been so excited to preach a sermon to you. And so I've come to the church thinking to myself, that story, or I've thought, that outline, or that point of application is so going to land on the church, and I have felt altogether abandoned at times, like it's just me. And my own pastor used to say, the pulpit is the loneliest place in the world to be, when God isn't with you. And then there have been other times when I felt ashamed, frankly, of the sermon that I've prepared. And at 5.30 p.m. in my study, I've gotten down on my knees half an hour before the evening service, and I've just prayed, Lord, override my efforts here. 
override what I have prepared and bring what only you can bring. And 10 minutes, 15 minutes into the message, I've noticed a pin drop silence among us all because Jesus was speaking. You remember my friend James Tideman who came to preach a few months ago. I remember when we were at Bible college together, he told me that he'd been at a conference And at this conference, someone was speaking, and the guy that was speaking had a ministry where he would go into churches where they were near to closure, maybe seven people, eight people on a Sunday morning, and he would be there until the church grew and until they could sustain a full-time pastor, and then he would move on and just do it all over again. And he said in his message, sometimes people ask me, how do you do it? How do you bring about consistent church growth? And he said, here's how I do it. And he pulled out a sheet of A4 paper on the platform where he was speaking. He put it on the ground and he laid down face ground on the platform so that the piece of paper would block the dust from being inhaled. And he said, when you want God's blessing, prayer is the place to start. That's how I do it. I pray. And God brings the blessing. But then there's the ministry of the word. Why is the ministry of the word so Central, why is it God's priority for God's church? Well, number one, God's word confirms, uh, conforms rather the church to God's mind. God's word conforms the church to God's mind. The reason that I preach consecutive expository messages through books of the Bible is because I want you to be conformed to the mind of the one who inspired God's word. If I came every Sunday morning And every Sunday night with my ideas and with my burdens, the result would be I would conform you all to my mind and my brain would be the ceiling of this church. But when you rightly divide the word of truth in 1 Peter or the prophecy of Haggai or or Mark's gospel or Genesis or the Psalms or Acts, then our minds begin to be conformed to the mind of God. Next, God's word strengthens the church, the church's immune system. A very well-known pastor was recently asked the question, what are some of the greatest dangers that you see facing the church today? And he responded by saying, if you had asked me what is the greatest danger to a human body, then I would have said a deficient immune system. Because when the immune system goes down, you can die of a hundred diseases. And he said in the church, it is just the same. There's an inability, he said, to discern truth from error. You remember Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And how Paul charged young Timothy, that young pastor who people would sometimes look down on because he was so young, so fresh-faced. Maybe he looked 12 years old like I do. And he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and we would say is here, when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into error. You want to stop that from happening in the church? Preach the word. Third, God's word equips the church for every good work. We don't need the magisterium. We don't need the Pope in Rome. Because the Bible says, all scripture is breathed out by God, is theonostos, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. Everyone. So church, please hear me when I say this. I have and I will devote myself to prayer and to the preaching of God's word. What I want to ask you to do is pray for me and listen as I preach God's word. Give yourselves to those who pastor and who keep God's who keep oversee your souls and listen as they preach. And let me just say when you come up to me and you say to me I pray for you every day. You have no idea how much that means. You make not only my day, but my entire week and year. And as I commit myself to the ministry of the word, friends, come to church each Lord's Day morning and evening with an open ear and an open heart. The only place in the universe that will beat church tonight at 6 p.m. is heaven. Not because my sermon is going to be that good, but because the word of God will be there. Well, second, I want us to see God's method for preserving them. That is God's method for preserving church leaders. Look again at verse six, uh, verse three, rather. It says, "Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so how could the apostles maintain this narrow emphasis of prayer and the ministry of the word when the church had grown to 20,000 people plus. Well, it was through the appointment of those who were spiritually mature and sufficient to meet, meet practical needs. And even though the word deacon isn't found in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 to 7, the blueprint for the diaconate is surely here, as we see from the pastoral epistles in the rest of the New Testament. Now, you might want to say, Hugh, why on earth are we talking about this on a Sunday morning? Why don't we talk about this at a members meeting? But my answer to that would be this. If you want elders devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word, you need to know who is qualified to intercept the needs that would otherwise swamp the elders and swamp church pastors. And in the providence of God at our next members meeting on the 14th of July, we will be seeking and hoping and praying to elect two deacons in view of the need that we currently have at our church. But if we long for the church to grow, 
we must have a profile in mind of those qualified to intercept the needs that would otherwise snuff out prayer and the ministry of the word. So what is the profile of a deacon? Well, number one, it is spiritual men. Spiritual men. Think about this. These seven men were, spiritually speaking, head and shoulders, perhaps, above 20,000 people. They were the men to whom everyone turned when this charge was given. What kind of spiritual caliber would that have to have been? And perish the thought here in this church that the elders are the spiritual ones and the deacons are the practically minded ones. Because, do you see here, these men were of great earthly help because they were so spiritually minded, as we'll see in Stephen next week, but also practically able. That is, actually able to meet the practical needs that arise in the church. I want us to think for a moment about character and gifting as being like two parallel railway lines. So, here is character. And if character stops here and gifting stops over here, the train is going to derail. And if gifting ends here and character ends over here, the train is going to derail. They have to run parallel side by side. But friends, this application for every believer in this room who calls this church their home because you do not need a title You do not need an office in the church to serve in a way that would actually help the elders to be given to prayer and the ministry of the word. These seven men didn't have a title. But friend, instead, if you're here today and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and if the gospel is everything to you, and if Christ and him crucified is the message that is the message above every other message in the world. Believe me when I say, I will find things for you to do in this church. There's plenty. So I want to give us these two words of application. Grow in godliness and know your gifts. Grow in godliness and know your gifts. How do you grow in godliness? By spending time with God. How do you grow in godliness? By spending time with God. Why? Our God is a consuming fire. And when you get before his face. And his Holy Spirit searches heart and mind. And his word that is that double-edged sword. Begins to separate the joints and the marrow. Either you will walk away in rebellion. Or you will repent in humble godliness. God will bring to mind sins of omission where we fail to do the things that he's called us to do. God will bring to mind the sins of commission where we've done the exact things that we know we we ought not to have done. And our resolve will grow to crucify every sin afresh every day. And we will find ourselves Longing for uh, loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates and being concerned for the things and the people and the causes that God is concerned for. 
And we won't be content to have our minds awash with the things of the world, but we'll have instead a mind that is focused on the glory of God in the face of Christ. And with all of that behind you, know your gifts in order to be able to serve. Don't worry about anyone thinking that you're looking for the limelight. I need you. (laughs) Mark needs you. We need you. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. To another two. To another one. To each according to his ability. A talent being a coin. And then he went away and he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thirdly and lastly, God's blessing on his priorities. Look at verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so what happened when God's church had God's priorities? Well, the church grew. What's the takeaway for us? If we are to know God's blessing here, then we too must have God's priorities for the church. No local church is promised the blessing that we read about here in the earlier chapters of Acts. This was a a unique time to be sure. But friends, healthy things grow. And no, no local church can claim to be healthy if the church doesn't share God's priorities. Listen as I close now to what one boy preacher wrote less than 200 years ago now in his first pastorate in a tiny town in England. He said this, 
did you ever walk through a village notorious for its drunkenness and profanity? Did you ever see poor wretched beings that once were men standing or rather leaning against the posts of the alehouse or staggering along the street? Have you ever looked into the houses of the people and beheld them as dens of iniquity at which your soul stood aghast? Have you ever seen the poverty and degradation and misery of the inhabitants and sighed over it? Yes, you say, we have. But was it ever your privilege to walk through that village again? In years after, when the gospel had been preached there, it has been mine. I once knew just such a village as I have pictures, perhaps in some respects, one of the worst in England, where all manner of riot and iniquity was rife. There went into that village a lad who had no great scholarship, but who was earnest in seeking the souls of men. He began to preach there, and it pleased God to turn the whole place upside down. In a short time, the little thatched chapel was crammed, The biggest vagabonds of the village were weeping floods of tears and those who had been the curse of the parish became its blessing. Where there had been robberies and villainies of every kind all round the neighborhood, there were none because the men who used to do the mischief were themselves in the house of God rejoicing to hear of Jesus crucified. I am not telling an exaggerated story nor a thing that I do not know for it was my delight to labor for the Lord in that village. It was a pleasant thing to walk through that place when drunkenness had almost ceased, when debauchery in the case of many was dead, when men and women went forth to labor with joyful hearts, singing the praises of the ever-living God, and when at sunset the humble cottager called his children together, read them some portion from the book of truth, and then together they bent their knees in prayer to God. I can say with joy and happiness that almost from one end of the village to the other, at the hour of eventide, one might have heard the voice of song coming from nearly every roof tree and echoing from almost every heart. I do testify to the praise of God's grace that it pleased the Lord to work wonders in our midst. He showed the power of Jesus' name and made me a witness of that gospel which can win souls, draw reluctant hearts, and mold afresh the life and conduct of sinful men and women. That is what happens. That is what can happen when God's church is driven by God's priorities. So friends, again, pray for those who pray for you and hear the word of God from the lips of those who have given themselves to the ministry of the word. And as we do, And as you do, may God bless us in the years to come. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.